My name is Mike Flanagan. I served in the military for uh, 17 years. It takes three years of training to become a, a JTAC or a Joint Terminal Attack Controller. In that three years, we go over, again, the functions of our equipment that we use. We learn how to operate as a team as opposed to an individual. As an example, in northern Iraq, uh, during the first part of the war, we inserted uh, from an Eastern European country. We were up against about 450 infantrymen, uh, seven tanks, and five gun trucks. The bad thing for us, we were in a an exposed area, we were in a, a clove of rocks, uh, probably 12 feet by 12 feet uh, area that just had uh, some medium-sized boulders that we could take cover from. Well, that day after that engagement, the amount of artillery shells and mortar rounds that were shot at us, it, I can't describe why those rounds did not hit us or come within a certain distance to actually inflict harm. So the only thing I can equate it to is the hand of God just seeing us in that clove of rocks and, and putting his hand of protection or sending his angels to cover us. Call it corny, call it sappy, whatever, but that's all I can think of. Uh, there's, there, there is no explanation of why we weren't hurt. So when the, the shootout was over and we were in relative, relative safety, I just, I don't know, I, I had an overwhelming feeling well up from, from my chest and I took a knee, took my hat off and asked for God's forgiveness, for one, for being an idiot, and not taking even an hour out of the day just to, to say hello to God and say, hey, it's Mike, I'm, I'm here to serve you and worship you. Again, these are thoughts that just flashed through my head almost in an instant. And uh, when I did that, I was also thanking God for making it safe for me to, to go through that engagement. And my buddy, uh, I would use his name, but I don't have his permission really to tell his story in front of folks, but uh, he came up to me and took a knee right next to me, put his arm around my shoulder and quietly just whispered in my ear. He said, teach me how to do this. And I was in the middle of a prayer and I, and I asked him what, and he said, teach me how to pray. And <laughs> uh, if you can picture it, Two guys just got out of a shootout, were covered in filth and dirt and grime, and the two of us, with tears rolling down our eyes, talking to, talking to God. And when Brother Mark says that prayer at the end of each sermon, it was the first time I came to New Spring, it, that, that prayer really resonated with me because it was almost verbatim of what I said to God. I believe in you. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for forgiveness of my sins. Thank you for making me God's child. And I just said in Jesus' name, amen. Instantly, I, I had goosebumps. I felt uh, a sensation over top of me that it, it just, it's hard to describe. It, it welled up from my chest and I felt 
lighter. Uh, I felt uh, everything was easy. It was, I wasn't in pain, I wasn't sore. Uh, I was just calm. My buddy, it was the same thing. He was like, why do I have goosebumps? It's 100, you know, almost 100 degrees outside. But, uh, uh, yeah, that was a powerful moment for me that will stay with me forever. Well, Mike Flanagan's a legend to me. And every time I see him at New Spring, I, I just want to tell him what a hero is to me. And in this series, one of the reasons why I bring it to you is we're, we tend to be a young church. And because of that, many of us are young parents. I'm not, but many of you are young parents with young kids. And, and we live in this celebrity craze culture where kids today are like almost channeled by the culture to look up to icons in the entertainment industry and sports and, and so on and so forth. But... You know, the truth to be told, a lot of the people that we look up to as celebrities, they don't really make that much difference. Mike Flanagan made a huge difference. And every time I see him here at New Spring, I want to tell him he's a hero to me because Mike, he would never want you to know that, but he carries in his body so many wounds and scars from battle. And in fact, he just had another surgery on the first this month. I saw him before the 815 service and he had his knee on, on a cart, you know, and, and I look at that and I think, wow, to me, that is what a legend does. A legend makes a difference. A legend... Uh, lives a life that matters. And so I want us to know what that means and also I want us to communicate to our kids. And it also too brings to truth, brings to reality the truth that there are legends among us here, legends in this room today. And I'm so thankful for you. Well, I want to talk to you today about something very special. Mike got pinned down in a firefight, and Mike wasn't doing anything wrong. Mike was doing something right. In fact, he didn't ask to be there. It, it wasn't it wasn't Mike's will that terrorists flew planes into the World Trade Center, but he's an American. And after that happened, Americans stood up and defended their country. And so Mike found himself in the middle of a firefight for doing something right. Most of us know what it's like to experience, all of us know what it's like to experience difficulty because we did something wrong. But what about doing something right? What happens when, what happens when everything changes? What happens when the playing field changes so that wrong is right and right is wrong? When, when someone switches the signs or when the culture switches the signs, how are you going to handle it when you come to that moment of decision where doing something right could put you in a place of jeopardy? How will you decide how to handle that firefight? Some of you are there today. It's a relationship situation. And the person you're in a relationship with has switched the signs. You would like to do the right thing. You've been trained in life to do the right thing. You want to do the right thing. But the person that you're in a relationship with has switched the signs so that now wrong is right and right is wrong. And he's saying to you that unless you agree with him, you're going to have to leave the relationship. So what are you going to do at that moment when doing the right thing could be expensive? Or it could be that you're in a workplace environment and stuff. Well, signs have been switched and wrong is right and right is wrong. And, and you know that what's going on isn't true. And you have to step up and be uh, considered potentially a whistleblower. So how are you going to handle that? What are you going to do when right is wrong and wrong is right? And if you step up and do the right thing, it might mean your career. Or even as a God follower, we live in a world that's becoming more and more hostile toward God and hostile especially toward Jesus Christ. What are you going to do if things change so much that doing right is wrong and wrong is right? And if you're at a place where doing the right thing could put you in jeopardy, how are you going to make the decision in the firefight at that moment? Well, our series is legendary, and in this series... I've begun to introduce you to five characters out of the Bible who were legendary um, because they found themselves in difficult moments and they did the right thing. 
These are five young Jewish people who were carried away captive. Um, and we've met them already. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And last week we met Esther. And in the worst of all situations, being ripped away from your country and repatriated and taken to a foreign country, these five young people lived out their faith in God in difficult circumstances. And we're exploring their lives. And today, we go back to Daniel. And oh, in fact, we're in the book of Daniel. If you want to open your Bible, so if you have a Bible app, you can check out Daniel chapter 6. And I'm just going to kind of jump around in the chapter. But it'd be really cool if you could read it when you go home today because it would give you a lot of backstory that I might not be able to touch. But Daniel, we're going to discover, is in such a firefight. He is in a situation where the signs are switched so that wrong is right and right is wrong. And he is going to be challenged that if he does the right thing, he's going to be in great jeopardy. And we're going to see how he came to his moment of decision. At this point in Daniel's life, a lot of time has passed. Daniel was taken away from Judah when he was just a young boy. And he worked for the Babylonians for 70 years. They were the first country to take his country captive. So he rose to the ranks of the Babylonians, worked for several kings, the place where he was the most influential person in Babylon. We know a lot of that story. But by the time we meet Daniel in chapter 6, well, according to historians, he's somewhere between 78 and 94 years of age, just sort of depending upon your calculations. Me? I think he was 80. 80 years old. And now he's working for the Persians. And as we've been talking about in the Nehemiah series in the, in the last few weeks, especially with Esther, the Persians were, they were just a different bunch. And Daniel here at the age of 80 is, is now not only working for the Persians, but he's very high in the government. Uh, again, last week I told you that the Persian government um, oversaw everything from India to Ethiopia, which was basically the whole world. And the Persian, uh, Persian Empire was divided up into 120 sections, 120 states, 120 provinces. And each one of the provinces had a governor. And these governors answered to three prime ministers who answered to the king. And Daniel is one of the three prime ministers. I'm assuming he's over a third of the empire. You know what's cool about Daniel? Is that Daniel, and this is one of my favorite lines in the book of Daniel. I think it's in verse 2 of chapter 6. The Bible says that Daniel had a spirit of excellence in him. He had an excellent spirit. Do you work with anybody like that? Or do you have anybody like that in your life? They just, everything they do is excellent. It doesn't matter. I mean, just, it doesn't matter whether they're working in the yard or working on a you know, major project. They just always bring their A game. They just have this... They just have this aura. They just have this, this, this beautiful aroma around them of excellence. Maybe that's you. And Daniel brings that. He, is, he has an excellent spirit about him. And he's still, and this is what I love, and a lot of y'all are really young. This won't really impact you right now. But for those of us who are getting a few years on us, he is still bringing his A game at 80. Wouldn't you like to still be cranking at 80? And he's so successful, and he has so much excellence in him, that the king of Persia decided, you know what, we don't need three prime ministers, we just need one. And we're going to have everybody answer to Daniel. I don't know if you guys have discovered this or not, but if you want people to hate you, just do three things. Have more, know more, do more. Can I go over that one more time? All it takes for people to hate you is just have more, know more, do more. And Daniel's got them on all three counts. He's going to be the most important guy in the world. So the other two prime ministers and the 120 governors are thinking, we've got to find a way to get rid of Daniel. And so they start auditing Daniel. They start checking out his life. And these powers that were, they went through his trash. They hacked his computer. They looked at all his emails. They looked at his business expenses. They did everything they could to find something wrong with Daniel. They even found out, you know, they, saw, they, they, they contacted his cable TV situation, got into that, found out what he was watching late at night. And they just checked everything out with Daniel. And they said, you know what? The only way we can find any problem with him is in regard to his religion because he's very, he's very 
devout to his God. Well, in Persia, they worshiped a, a bunch of gods. Really, they, they were secular. It didn't matter a whole lot. They just sort of had gods as kind of a cultural deal. But Daniel, was, he was a true believer. And so they said the only way we're going to find anything wrong with him is, is in the worship of his God. And so Daniel is like 80 years old. He's Jewish. He grew up Jewish. He has faith in God. He has faith in Jehovah God. So every day, three times a day, he prays. Now, Daniel's a long way from home, but he gets as close as he can. He always opens his windows toward Jerusalem, and three times a day he prays and he gives thanks to God, just like Mike was talking about giving thanks to God and praying to God in the video. So they see Daniel doing this, and they say, hmm, that's how we can get him. So these guys go to the king. If you were here last week, I shared with you the Persian kings were, were, were kind of a nice bunch, but they, 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 could be, they were pretty detached. This king loves Daniel. He wants to put Daniel over the empire. He has no idea what's going on in the backstory. But in any event, all of Daniel's enemies are going to see the king. They say, King, we're worried about something. We're worried about an absence of national unity. You know, these people come from all these people that we have conquered. They come from all parts of the world. They have their own gods. We need to have a centralized unification of everything. And they said, we just think this is a good idea. Let's set it up for the next 30 days so that if anybody prays to any god except you, Mr. King, that we, uh, we throw them in a den of lions and we let the lions take care of business. And the king said, well, that sounds like that would promote national unity. <laughs> and, um, and so he said, let's, let's make it a law. Let's write the law. Now, here's something you should know. In fact, to this day, we still have an expression that we use called the law of the Medes and Persians. See, the Medes and Persians were different when they wrote a law. Once that law was law, not even the king who wrote the law could supersede it. And it couldn't be broken. So these guys set it up perfectly. They just said, anybody who prays goes to a den of lions, and even the king can't undo it. So, I mean, they, they passed the law, and, of course, the word is out on the streets, you know. It's texted to everybody. They're putting, like, flyers on people's windshields. They're tacking up telephone poles. Can't pray to any other guy for 30 days. Daniel can't escape it. He knows the writing has been, he knows the law has been passed. So if you're Daniel, what do you do? I mean, you know, he's got a decision to make. I mean, let me ask you a question. What would you do if praying became illegal? Because at that point, not only was praying illegal, it was a capital offense. So Daniel's got a decision to make. What does he do? I mean, he goes straight home, throws open his windows like he'd always done, and he prays right in front of the windows. And so they, these enemies trot right back to the king, and they say, King, you know what? You got a guy in your kingdom that's just flipping you off, basically. He's praying in front of everybody. And this king said, well, who is the guy? And they said, well, it's Daniel. Oh, no. King loves Daniel. He doesn't want to put Daniel in the lion's den. All day long, he works, on, he, he, he works on government gymnastics trying to get Daniel out of trouble. But at the end of the day, he can't. Law of the Medes and Persians can't be superseded. And so much to his chagrin, he has to take Daniel, escort him to the den of lions. And right before he puts him in the den of lions, the king says to Daniel, you know, I don't think the king was, I don't think he really believed it. But he said, you know, maybe, maybe this God that you serve so faithfully, maybe he'll get you out. I don't know your God. I don't know why you're so big on your God, but you're, you're serious about it, Daniel. Maybe your God will get you out. I don't think so, but maybe, maybe. Well, they put Daniel in the lion's den. And all night long, Daniel's there. Lions don't bother him. King can't sleep. He can't eat. As some of them made the point, uh, you know, when Daniel, the night Daniel was in the lion's den, Daniel could sleep, but the king couldn't. 
And so the next morning, the king, early in the morning, comes to the den of lions. If you read the Hebrew language, if you read the Hebrew, the king was sad, so he, didn't, he thinks Daniel's dead. Daniel probably digested by now. So he says out loud, Daniel, is the God you serve continually? Is he, was he able to deliver you? And Daniel answers back from lion's den and said, King, uh, I'm doing fine. My God sent his angel to close the mouths of the lions, and I am doing fine. And the king said, great, now you've, you've served your sentence, come out. And then he decided to take all of Daniel's accusers and to throw them into the den of lions, and the lions rediscovered their appetite. And that's the, that's the story. <laughs> I grew up in church. I don't know if any of you did much. I grew up in church, and I'm really, really old. Those are two things you should know. 99% of you will not know what this term means. I used to grow up in Sunday school. We have flannel graph. There was a flannel board, and a teacher would put a flannel piece up there. That's prehistoric videos for all of you who have kids in kids' world. And, and, and I can still see them. This is Daniel. This is the lions. But there's so many lessons from that that I didn't learn when I was a kid. And I want to sort of bring those to you. I'm always nervous when a minister has six points. But given the fact that you're really going into a traffic jam when the service is over, I'm going to try to get through early. It's never happened before, but you never know. It could happen once. I want to give you six lessons real fast. And here's the first one that we learned from Daniel. We're in a firefight. Daniel's in a firefight. When, when, when there's a law that says if you pray, you're going you're to die, <laughs> make no mistake about it. He's in a firefight. And you and I are too. The moment you decide to follow Jesus Christ, you pick up three enemies. Well, the fact is you have them anyway. But surely once you accept Jesus Christ, you have three enemies. And the Bible outlines what they are. They are the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, those terms, they're kind of quirky. And if we're not careful, we can misunderstand. So let's just let's talk about what they mean. When the Bible talks about the devil being our enemy, is, is he the guy with the horns, you know, that people put on costumes? And, you know, is he the guy in a red suit and a pitchfork? You know, is he like, is he like the, the caricature of the pictures that we see? First of all, Satan doesn't have a body. He's an angel. He's a spirit, like you and our spirits that live in bodies. And he is an angel who rebelled against God, one of the most powerful. You need to understand Satan can't be everywhere. He's not omnipresent like God. But a third of the angels revolted with him. So he's a networker. He's got a real network going. And so constantly he works in our world. And, and Peter tells us that Satan, like a roaring lion, goes around looking for people. And let me put this in modern language. He's looking for people whose lives he can screw up. And so you've got an enemy who is Satan. Secondly, you have an enemy from within. The Bible calls it the flesh, not your skin. It's the nature you inherited when, when you were born. We inherited this nature from Adam. It's, it's flawed. It's broken. I don't know if you know you have one. I know I have one. Nobody had to teach me to lie. I just came by that on my own. Nobody had to teach me to, nobody had to, teach me to be selfish. You, you'd be amazed how good I got at that without any lessons. Nobody has to teach me to do wrong. I have, I have within me and you have within you a predisposition toward wrong, toward sin. Now, maybe not every sin, but all of us have a predisposition toward doing the wrong thing. It's a bit. It's a nature that we acquired. When you accept Jesus Christ as, as your Savior, the Holy Spirit moves in, so you've got a head-button experience going on inside of you all the time. Now, listen, I just gave you about a 10-second explanation of this. If you really want to read about this, if you want to understand about how you have two natures going on inside of you, let me give you three chapters in the Bible to read that will make it clearer for you than perhaps... It is right now. Romans 6, 7, and 8. Open up the book of Romans when you get home. Not right now, but read those three chapters when you get home, and it'll be real clear that if you're a Christ follower, you have conflict going on, which is why sometimes we as Christ followers can say, how could a person like me think a thought like that? 
Any, any brothers and sisters here? You know, I mean, it's like, whoa, where did that thought of revenge come from? Whoa, where did that thought of lust come from? Well, it's because you and I have an old nature that's not redeemed, which is why we have to die or we have to be changed before we leave this life. And then the third enemy that you and I have is what the Bible calls the world. Well, we're not against the planet, and we're certainly not against people. By the way, if you're a Christ follower, you have no enemies who are people. The Bible tells us, and this is a very important scripture in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we're not fighting against humans. So you say, well, I thought we were against atheists. No, not if you're a Christian, you're not against anybody. We have no enemies who are human. You say, Mark, you don't know my mother-in-law. I'm telling you. <laughs> You have no, you know, I mean, people who don't think like we do, don't believe like, they're not the enemy. They're, we never fight against people. When the Bible talks about the, the world, it's talking about the culture or the world system. And specifically, John tells us there's three aspects of the culture that we're against. The, the lust of the eyes, I want what I see. The lust of the flesh, I want what makes me feel good. And the pride of life, look at me. Those are, those are the three elements of the world system. And by the way, John tells us those are, those are passing away. They're going away. When Jesus rules, they will not be part of the world system. But right now they are. I challenge you, when you go home today, if you turn on the Chiefs game and you watch the commercials, not just the Chiefs game, but any commercials, notice how those commercials are predicated on, I want what I see, I want what makes me feel good, look at me. So you and I are in a firefight every day of our lives against a spiritual enemy, Satan, against a nature that lives within us, our old person, and the culture that says, I want what I see, I want what makes me feel good, and look at me. That's where Daniel is. All three. Satan would love to get rid of him. Um, the culture is trying to get rid of him, and certainly I'm sure at 80 years of age, Daniel's old nature said, hey, listen, Daniel, if you're smart, you just won't pray for 30 days. Or I don't know if, how many of you grew up Baptist like I did. But if you, if you grew up Baptist, you would say, I'm going to pray in my heart for 30 days. That means I'm going to pray silently. I don't know, maybe if you're Catholic, you may have been taught the same thing or whatever. But whatever you're, you know, some of us have been taught, just pray in your heart. Don't say anything out loud. And nobody will know anything. And if I'm Daniel, my flesh is saying that. Daniel's in a firefight. Here's the question. Maybe this is the question for all of us to consider today. How do you stay safe in a situation where wrong is right and right is wrong and doing the right thing puts you in jeopardy? Ultimately, what do, you, what do you depend on to stay safe when doing the right thing puts you in danger? That's what this is all about. Daniel's in a firefight. He's not doing anything wrong. He's just praying. And yet doing the right thing has jeopardy. Where's Daniel going to look for safety? Lesson number two. We talked a few moments ago about the world culture. One of the aspects of the culture that you and I live in is it has a tendency to switch the signs, and boy, is that true. You and I live in a world where increasingly right is wrong and wrong is right. We live in a world where it seems to be the most dangerous thing in the world is to be a God follower. I mean, you know, you, you, let, a, you let a student pray at a graduation. My goodness, you would think that student walked in with a bomb. When did God become so dangerous? You know, you know we've, we've had this thing about, you know, we can't even have the Ten Commandments in a public display. I mean, not that that's a huge thing to me, but I mean, just the fact that we're told that it can't be so. I mean, what's so dangerous about the Ten Commandments? You know, honoring your vows and, and honoring your parents and, and telling the truth and all that. Why did that become so dangerous? Simply put, we're in a culture today where wrong is right and right is wrong. 
And the weird thing about that is, all you have to do is just quietly articulate God's views on relationships and values and money, and next thing you know, you're called intolerant and a hate monger and trying to impose your values on other people. And the weird thing is, the moment you do that, people become intolerant of you, hateful of you, and want to impose their values on you. Well, we just live in a world where the signs are switched. And here's the thing. In a world like that, those of us who are Christ followers, we sort of struggle with what to do because you know what? We know that Jesus told us to go the second mile. In other words, Jesus told us to do everything we can to get along. He told us to be tolerant. He told us to, to love people. When I say Jesus told us to go the second mile, let me explain what I mean by that. Jesus came along several hundred years later, and by that time, the Romans ruled the world. And the Romans had a law that if a Roman soldier found any young boy within any part of the kingdom, that he could demand that that kid carry his pack one mile. And the Romans, they were, they were trying to be, I guess, what they thought fair about it. They didn't have to carry it more than a mile, but he, had, he didn't have to carry it a mile. And Jewish kids really chafed under that. And, and the historians tell us that Jewish boys would mark off a mile in every direction from their house with a white peg so they wouldn't have to carry the peg. They had to carry the stuff an inch more. And they could throw it down and say, that's that. Jesus came along and he said, look, if somebody makes you go a mile with them, go too. So there's a part of us as Christ followers that in this world where the signs have been switched, where wrong is right and right is wrong, there's a, there's a part of us that says, but I want to get along. And I want to be tolerant. And I want to be gracious. And that's good. How do we know, how do we know what to do? Because see, here's the thing. If some of us transported our way of thinking back to Daniel's time and we got told that if you pray, it's a capital offense, some of us would say, well, you know what? I'm not going to pray for 30 days because I don't want to offend anybody. I wrote this line 18 months ago when this series was first on my mind. And that line now is the second point of this series. you got to understand what Daniel was saying was, look, Daniel was saying, I'll go the second mile with you all day long. You want me to speak, Bab speak Babylonian? I'll speak Babylonian. You want me to speak Persian? I'll speak Persian. You want me to work for you? I'll bring my A game. You want me to do everything you ask me to do to make a good administration? I'll have an excellent spirit. But Daniel was saying this. Listen, he was saying, I'll go the second mile with you all day long, but don't ask me to go one centimeter past God's word. And that's the spirit that you and I need to have today. We need to be tolerant and gracious and friendly and loving and compassionate and giving. And yet at the same time, we have to say, if you tell me I must deny my God, I won't go a centimeter past where I am because my God is so important. Maybe this is the way to ask the question. When you come to that place where you have to decide, what will you do when doing the right thing puts you in jeopardy? Maybe the question you might want to ask yourself is, do I want to put my future in the hands of the one who write the rules or the one who controls the lions? And Daniel says, well, let, let's, uh, <laughs> let's, let's go to the third lesson real quick. This one's, we'll make this real fast. You know, what happens when, they, when, the, when Daniel's enemies start checking him out, they look through everything in his life, and they say, the only way that we're going to find anything wrong with him is in his religion. As a Christ follower living in a world that's becoming increasingly anti-God and especially anti-Christ, you and I need to live in such a way where the only fault that people can find in us is a virtue. Hey, guys, if you're a Christ follower and you're not faithful to your commitments, if you lie and you don't tell the truth, if you're a Christ follower and, and you're, you're not faithful in your, in your business, that's no testimony for Jesus Christ. Don't walk around shouting to everybody about your virtues and what you believe. 
I mean, what, 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 a, what a great thing for a God follower to live in such a way that the only fault they can find is in what he does that's good. Hey, could you survive an audit from your enemies? It would be one thing to be audited by your friends or audited by a neutral source, but Daniel survived an audit by his enemies. Let me go to the fourth lesson real fast. And again, a lot of y'all, are, I, especially this is a really young audience, and so a lot of y'all will have no idea what I'm talking about. But let me just tell you, when you get older, well, I'm not really older. Let's, uh, when you get mature, <laughs> when you get not as young as you used to be, let me tell you what happens. You have a tendency just to be milder about things. I first noticed this in my parents when my kids were small. You know, when I was in my late 20s, early 30s, and Jonathan and Jared came along, my, my parents, as grandparents, they just changed. Things that used to be mortal sins when I was a kid growing up, they were cute now, you know? And I wonder, who kidnapped my parents and who are these people who look like them, you know? Because this is what happens. You get older, you just like get a little bit more milder. It's like, well, you know, Daniel is 80 years old. And Daniel could say, well, I just want to be tolerant here. And I realize things change and cultures change and persons have a problem with my praying and all that. Maybe I'm just going to like step back because when we get older, that's what we tend to do. We're not as idealistic as we were when we were young. But guys, number four, lesson number four that we learn from Daniel is people age, but truth doesn't. I mean, here's the thing. Daniel, Daniel prayed. He believed in Jehovah God. He's not going to change now. And no, no wonder, because God doesn't change. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, God says, I'm the Lord. I don't change. 1 Samuel 15, 29, the Bible says he's not a man that he should change his mind. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, could I, let me talk bluntly with you for a moment. We were seeing a lot of, we're seeing a lot of change in views of morality and relationships and just areas of right and wrong. We're seeing that happen a lot real fast in our culture today. You know what I hear? The expression I hear is people say, well, we're in an evolving culture. In other words, we're on a journey as a culture, and we're evolving. Now, guys, listen, I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but that's about as dumb as dirt. Because we're not an evolving culture. We're a revolving culture. We have been here before many times. The values, the sexual mores of our culture today have been here before. They were here before the flood. That's why the flood came. They were here in the days of, I mean, that's the reason why Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah and as it was in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, so it will be before Jesus comes back. I mean, the Chaldeans live this way. The Canaanites live this way. Babylonians live this way. So when you look at the sexual morality of our culture today, it's not evolving. No, it's revolving. It's been here before many times. Guys, I just want to, I love you enough to tell you this. God's the same. God doesn't evolve. His views don't evolve. God is right where he was 4,000 years ago. I mean, he is right where he was when he told Noah he was sending a flood. God is right where he was when he told Abraham he was going to deal with Sodom and Gomorrah. God is right where he was when he told the prophets he was going to deal with Judah and Israel 1500 or, or 2,500 years ago. God is right where he was when Jesus was on the earth 2,000 years ago. God is right where he was today and 10 million years from now. He'll be right where he is. God does not change. God does not move. He is the rock. God's not the slightest bit concerned that at 58, I'm just a little bit more moderate than I was at 20 because truth doesn't change. Now, here's the big lesson. The whole message could be on this next one. 
And it goes to this question. When you're in a firefight and you have to make a decision because the, the signs have been switched and right is now wrong and wrong is now right and doing the right thing means that you've got jeopardy, how are you going to make the decision in the crisis point? What are you going to use to make that decision? Because, see, that's where Daniel is. He knows that the law has been passed. He knows if he prays, they're going to put him in a lion's den. That's a bad way to go. I'm not sure there's any good way to go, but that's a really bad way to go. So he understands he's 80 years old. How is he going to make that decision? I just asked you a very dumb question. That's not the question. Because, see, here's the thing. If you and I wait till that moment, it's too late to make the decision. Here's the thing, and I love this. Let me just read this to you, and I think you'll see the answer without me articulating it much. In Daniel 6, verse 10, when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down, love these two words, as usual. In his upstairs room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he prayed three times a day, look at this, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. Here's the thing. When you have a critical decision to make that's a life and death decision about what you're going to do, your habits will make the decision for you. What you have always done is what you will do. Daniel didn't have to make a decision. He'd been praying every day three times a day since he was a little boy. <laughs> Just because the Persians changed the law is not going to make any difference to Daniel. His habits made the decision. Now, here's the thing. Your habits are far more important than you and I realize that they are. I'm going to make four different statements and yet at the same time, it may just be four ways of restating the same thing. Here they are. Number one, habits declare real values. Habits declare real values. Number two, habits underscore values. Number three, you can check out your values with your habits. If you want to know what your values are, just look at your habits. See, some of us have the idea. We say, well, these are my values, but our habits are over here. No, 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 no. Your real values are what your habits are. So when you think about your habits and how you spend money and how you treat people and, and you know, how you, how you discipline your life and, and, and how you live your life. That's what your real values are, your habits. And if you have good habits, then you have good values. Number four, when you get to a crisis point, let your habits make your decisions. When the law was signed, Daniel did not have to survive a divided mind. Well, let me close up with number six, the sixth lesson. You know, as I said, when I grew up in church, the you know, teachers would tell me the story of the Daniel in the lion's den about how Daniel, you know, put, was put in the lion's den and the lions didn't eat him, and that was the end of the story. I don't know why they never put this last part in, but I want to give it to you. Because when the king came the next morning and found that Daniel was still living, the king brought Daniel out through, as I said, through Daniel, Daniel's enemies in. And then the king had a proclamation for the whole nation. Listen to this. The King Darius sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you. I decree that everyone throughout my kingdom should tremble with fear before the God of Daniel. The king is saying, I don't know his name, just Daniel's God. But he's pretty serious. Because he says he's the living God. He will endure forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed. and His rule will never end. He rescues and saves his people. He performs miraculous signs and wonders in the heavens and earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. And the next verse says, so Daniel went on to prosper during the reign of the Persians. See, lesson number six is this. Legends don't just win. They change the game. As I asked you a few moments ago, when you have to make a decision about what you're going to do in a moment where right is wrong and wrong is right and doing the right thing can bring negative consequences, the question you're going to have to ask yourself is do you want to put your, you want to put your well-being in the hands of those who write the laws or those who control the lines? 
Because you know the funny thing, and we'll see this next week, strange thing about following God is insiders have a strange way of becoming outsiders, and outsiders have a peculiar way of becoming insiders. How can you be safe in doing the right thing? Like I told you, this is a special jersey. Mm. You know, when I came here in 1985 from Texas, I was kind of pumped about the two sports teams in Kansas. Um, for one thing, I'd always loved the Chiefs. I mean, I mean, no disrespect, they came from Texas, and they were owned by a Texan. So I've always loved the Chiefs. I mean, I remember Super Bowl four. I mean, I, I, they were always my AFC team, so I, no, I love the Chiefs. But I also love the Royals, because see, for a long time in Dallas-Fort Worth, we didn't have a team. And so the team I, I kind of pulled for, I, I love the Royals. So I came up here loving the Royals, and I came up in 85, and y'all are too young to know this, but it was a great year to come up here and be a Royals fan. Because in 1985, the Royals were coached by, well, they were coached by a legend. What Tom Landry was to football, the, the coach, that the, the manager that the Royals had back then, that's, that's, what's, he was just class in all, all caps. And I, when they won the World Series that year, I thought, wow, this is going to be great. Because, I mean, you could just see the future lined out. A whole lot of talent, world-class coach. Few, few weeks ago, actually a couple months ago maybe, um, in the previous service, in the 930 service, Gene Stevenson, longtime coach at Wichita State, he always sits right here. And um, it was right about the time that Gene was inducted into college uh, hall of fame, college baseball hall of fame. So I was walking off stage here and Gene called me over and said, hey Mark, I want you to meet somebody. And next to Gene was a lady and he said, I want you to introduce, my, I want to introduce you to my friend. And, and um, she is executive vice president of the college Baseball Hall of Fame. And uh, uh, Gene asked me a question. He said, um, in the context of baseball, does the name Hauser ring a bell with you? And I said, oh, yeah. I I know Dick Dick Hauser was the coach of the Royals, manager of the Royals when they won the World Series. And he said, this is Jana. This is is Dick's daughter, Jana Hauser. And, uh, wow, it brought back memories because for those of you who know the story, right after Dick led the Royals to the World Series title. What a great year that was, too. Down three games to one twice, came back, won the World Series in the second of those series. Well, Dick was coaching the, he was coaching the, the, uh, the All-Star game in 86, and he just wasn't feeling right. He was having, I mean, sometimes he couldn't remember names, and so he got checked out, and unfortunately, Dick had a brain tumor and died. And Jana was talking to me about that when I first met, and she was telling me the story how that Billy Graham came to his house and Dick made sure of his relationship with God. And that's a great story. And um, for some reason yesterday, I, I just got thinking about Dick. Because see, last weekend, uh, Jana was here. She's, she lives in, in Dallas, and she was here. In, and when I walked off stage, Jana asked me a question. She said, hey, Mark, if the Royals keep winning, would you wear a Royals jersey if I got you one? I said, absolutely. And I said, I'd love to do it in memory of your dad. So Friday, Gene called me, and he said, hey, Mark, I don't know what you're doing, but if you can come over to the house right now. He said, Janice sent me a jersey, and, and he said, uh, I'd like for you to wear it. So I'm wearing that jersey today. I, yesterday, I just got so interested in what happened in the last year of Dick's life because everything I read said the last year of Dick's life when he knew he was battling cancer. 
he spent that year every chance he could sharing his faith in Jesus Christ every place he went. I found a PDF of him with Billy Graham in the Tallahassee newspaper. When Billy Graham had a crusade in Tallahassee, there was a picture of Dick standing with Billy Graham with Billy Graham's arms slipped around his shoulders and Dick wearing a cap because of the cancer treatments as he was just about to walk on stage and share his testimony with the world of his faith in Jesus Christ. But what I found the most yesterday that's most meaningful is I pulled up a sermon that a friend of mine would preach the day after Dick's funeral in 1987. Uh, my friend was longtime pastor of First Baptist Church of Orlando. He's retired now. But he had actually written in his sermon about Dick Hauser and about his funeral the day before. And he said, Dick Hauser came home yesterday. And he told the story about Dick and his testimony for Christ and how that he shared his faith with everybody that he knew. And how, what a difference he made in people's lives as he told people about Jesus Christ. And then he said these words, and that's when it hit me, the meaning for today's talk. And I thought, how fitting that I'm wearing this jersey today. He said the headlines of the paper in Florida said this. Dick Hauser, safe at home. Now, there's, there's some pepper in what I'm about to tell you. This is, this is strong stuff. You and I live in a world that's becoming more anti-God and specifically anti-Jesus every day. And it's fast. And I don't know where we're going to have to be, but I know this. I know that when it comes down to, if I'm placed in a situation where the signs get switched, whether it's an everyday situation or it's something cataclysmic, where the signs get switched, we're doing the right thing, could carry with it a big price tag. I'm much more concerned that my well-being be in the hands of the one who controls the lines and the one who writes the rules. Because here's the deal. At the end of the day, we're all going to leave here somehow. Last time I looked, statistics on death are one out of every one dies. Something's going to take us. And you know what? I am much more concerned that my life is in the hands of the one who made me a promise after he died on a cross. That if I put my life in his hands to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. I want to put my life in the hands of the one who said in John eleven twenty six, He who lives and believes in me will never die. You're a spirit that lives in a body. Death to you is just the end of your body. It is not the cosmic stop sign. It is not the end of you. If your faith and trust is in Jesus Christ, you'll just slip out of this body and slip into the presence of God. And if you live that way, you have absolutely no fear. See, your life is not in the hands of the ones who write the rules. Your life is in the one, hands of the one who controls the lines. How do, you, how do you be sure of that? You know, I, I love what Janet was telling me. Billy, came to, Billy Graham came to the house, and, and Dick, even though he was a believer in Christ, he just wanted to be sure. It's not a religion. It's not joining a church. I love New Spring Church, but New Spring can't get you out of Cedric County when you die. You say, well, I'm a good person. Oh, you and I know better than that. <laughs> I mean, to be good in God's sight, you have to be perfect. I can't be perfect for 30 minutes. You say, well, I've been baptized. Well, that's great. Uh, Wichita water can't wash away anybody's sins. <laughs> no. There is only one way to have a relationship with God, and that is through his son, Jesus Christ, who came into this world and died on a plus sign because God always adds. God always gives. 
God wants you to have a relationship with him, but it's not based on what you do. It's based on what he did for you, and he wants you to receive a gift of forgiveness and everlasting life. And all he asks from you is to put your confidence in him. Would you be willing to do that today? I want to pray a prayer with you, probably very similar to the one that Dick prayed with Billy. But I want you to pray a prayer with me if you want to be sure of your relationship with God because God just said ask. You ready? Here we go. Pray with me. The word's not the important thing. The important thing is what you mean. I'll pray it slowly so you can own the words, own the meaning. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I'm broken. And I can't fix myself. But I believe you love me anyway. I believe you love me unconditionally. Believe me, I believe you love me so much that your son Jesus died for me. I believe his blood paid for my sins. And then I believe he arose from the grave. I commit my life to you. I ask you to forgive me and make me God's child. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name. Guys, if you prayed that prayer, I know it was quick. You could say, I'm not sure what happened to me. I know we're congested. But hey, there's going to be a big traffic jam out there. You've got plenty of time. All you need to do is come back to guest services. A big one out in the lobby, a little one back in the back, and just say, I prayed with Mark. They'll give you this. It's got a DVD and a book I wrote and a coupon for a new Bible. Thank you for being here. See you next Sunday. We'll close out the series.